You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Tested. This series explores the book of 1 Peter to learn how we can respond when our faith is tested. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. It's been five weeks since I've preached here, and which means a little out of practice. I know you'd think I would have had enough practice by now, but I, it's been five weeks. And uh, how many here, like, like on your first day of school, the teacher gave you a pop quiz? How many of you remember that? Anybody have that experience? Like your first day, it, it should be like all cape, you know, cupcakes and you know, like orientation, and they, they, you know, they let you out, you know, thirty minutes early. But all of a sudden, bam, first day, big test, really difficult, really challenging. You'd rather ease into things. Well, that's, I'm kind of feeling those kinds of things right now because it's been a while since I've spoken. You kind of want to maybe like a softball to, to preach. But this is commentators and theologians will say this is one of the most difficult texts uh, in the Bible. In fact, I talked to some really smart people about uh, one verse in particular that we'll talk about. I said, you know, what do you guys think this means? And they gave me great answers like, uh, I don't know. And, um, and so even a guy like Martin Luther, if you don't know Martin, Martin Luther is not only a big deal in church history, but he's a big deal in world history. You know, the whole Protestant revolution and, you know, big part of people being able to read and write and all kinds of great things. Um, he, his response to this was, I don't know. So that, that's my, I mean, I have butterflies in my stomach. It's going to be challenging. But so what I'm going to do with this text is that we're going to take three passes around this verse. We're going to hit it in concentric circles and, and, and a, three, three different um, headings I want to give this. One is warning. The first thing I want to bring to us today is warning. Um, there's a warning in this passage. The second thing is good news. There's some really good news uh, in this passage. And then finally, some encouragement. And so with that, let me read to you uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. Uh, If you have one of those black Bibles, that's on page 1016. You ready? Here we go. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us back to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's the tricky verse. But they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been been subjected to him. Um, In 2002, NPR's signature nightly news program, All Things Considered, and the New York Times began to put out all these pieces um, methodically and compellingly uh, reporting that New Orleans was a disaster waiting to happen. They, they said if a bad hurricane hit, the city would fill up like a cereal bowl, killing tens of thousands, laying waste to the city's architectural heritage. If the big one hit, they said, New Orleans would literally disappear. John Nornheimer, he was a guy from the Times, he said hey, the, the, that levees and luck were no longer enough to protect New Orleans. For years, Ivor von Heerden 
a hurricane expert at Louisiana State University saw the tragedy coming. And since 2002, he and his colleagues were generating computer model modules of you know how a major storm its effect on New Orleans. And his team tenaciously and at times desperately sought to convince local officials, but were scoffed at. In an interview conducted in October 2004, he was asked. If New Orleans were a patient in the hospital, how would you describe them? At what stage would you say they're at? And he replied, and I quote, close to death. Less than a year later, on the morning of August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast of the United States. 2,000 people were killed. Hundreds of thousands were displaced. Katrina accounted for more than $100 billion in damage. Um, why do you think that they didn't listen to the warning? Why, why do you think, I'll say that, why do you think that you don't listen to warnings? Why, why don't I listen to warnings? Why don't we listen to warnings? I mean, all the information was there. $15 billion, they said, would have saved them from this tragedy would have been a savings of $85 billion alone, not to mention, of course, the lies, which have immense value. Why wouldn't they listen to warning? You know, there was another flood that actually this verse talks about. It talks about in the days of, of Noah that there was a, there was a flood coming that, that God gave warning to through, through Noah. And for 120 years, people were warned that this flood was coming... And there was a way of escape in this ark, but in anyone who climbed in the ark was saved, but only eight people heeded this warning. And one day the clouds gathered, the rain began to drop one by one. Probably in the beginning people were thinking no big deal, but then the rain drops became just torrent. The ground broke, water came up, flooded the earth, and it killed everybody except people who were in the ark. So they didn't listen to that flood. Most people, if not all people, didn't listen to Katrina. But there's another flood coming of sorts. Uh, A much more destructive flood called the wrath of God toward sin, toward sinners. Let me tell you what Jesus had to say. This is what he says in Matthew 24. He says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the sun. Jesus is saying, I don't even know when this is. I, that, I don't have that kind of intel yet. But only the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of man. Now, I just want to time out here because I realize that there's a lot of people who say, you know what, I don't even know. I mean, Noah, the ark, you know, does that even happen? And I, there's scientists on one side that have information or facts that would say, like, it didn't exist. And there's some that would present evidence that say it did exist. Um, but let me tell you why I think it happened. This is a little bit as a kind of a by the way, um, and, and this may help you. Is yeah, it's mentioned in the Old Testament and the Hebrews and First Peter as we're reading twice in the New Testament. But but Jesus Jesus is talking about it as if it happened, and um, Jesus is the only person that I know of who successfully predicted his death and his resurrection and then had the power to pull it off. So like to me, I don't care how many. Uh, degrees you have, if you can predict your own death and your own resurrection, 
and then pull it off, I'm going to go with you. And so that's my, that's my take. And uh, you may have a different take, but I believe it. Jesus believed it happened. I believe it happened. But anyway, but it says here, for the, in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, given to marriage, just kind of living their life, you know, paying their taxes, you know, going to concerts, doing whatever, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In those days, they, there was a 20-year window where people were warned that a flood was coming. And then that window closed and the flood came. There's been about a 2,000-year warning, if you just count since Jesus resurrected that he's coming back. It was actually before that, but let's just use this. 2,000-year window. That I don't know where we're at in that window, but time is running out. Will you heed the warning that waters are coming, that flood is coming, that wrath is coming, or will you scoff like they did in the days of Noah, like they do in things like Katrina? How do you save yourself? It's not by being good. The flood does not care how good you've been. It's just coming, and it's going to destroy whatever's in its path. People who were saved from the flood were the ones who got in the ark. People who are saved from the coming wrath of God are those who get in a relationship with Jesus. How? Why? What is this good news? Well, we'll take another pass at this. This is the good news. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us back to God. Our biggest problem is, is on two different levels. One is our sin. The second thing is that we are separated from God. Your biggest problem, whether this is felt to you or not, is that you are separated from God. John Calvin, in speaking of this text, said the reason, in thinking about the cross, he said that God wanted his kids back. That God's, that we are all made in his image, and he desires that none perish, and he made paradise for us. We, like spoiled children, like ran out in the middle of the street, and we, he wants them back. Um, a few years ago, I, actually it was like five years ago, my son Simon was three or four. And I took, I went to go hit some golf balls. Um, and so I took him with me to the range. And on the way to the range, he fell asleep. And so like any good parent, I just left him in the car and went to hit golf balls. And so we, um, I cracked the windows. And so we, um, so I'm hitting golf balls. I come back to, to our van and he's not in his car seat. And I'm I, instant terror. I mean, like legitimate, the scariest moment in my life. I run around the van, look under the van, look on top of the van, and I'm darting around this place looking at, you know, I mean, I didn't, I'm asking people, I'm run, super, just running around. It took like 15 seconds, but it felt like 15 years. And then like in total desperation, like, like not giving up, but just kind of like, what am I going to do? I lean up against um, the passenger side window and I look over and my son is crouched down in the seat. And he has this little devilish grin on his face. It's one of those moments as a parent where you want to hug him because you love him so much, but you also want to squeeze him to death. And so, like, it's like one of those feelings. And um, don't judge me. And so we, we, but what, 
what those kind of moments make you realize that even as a re- decent parent, not a, even a good one, just a decent parent, like you would do anything for your kids. You just do anything. I am way more comfortable with my suffering than I am their suffering. And if they're in trouble, I would do anything to get them back. Well, here, but here's the reality, though. Look, my son was to um, get in harm's way. If he was to run out in the middle of the street, get hit by a car, and if he was pronounced dead, there's nothing I could do in that moment. My, the, the, the realm of my power is not in the realm of death. I have no power when it comes to death. And I don't know if you've taken stock of what you have control over, but you don't have control over death either. There's nothing you can do. So how can we be snatched from death? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the righteous, he who, who had no sin, the righteous one, died in our place. Jesus, God, God spared nothing to get us back. He did not even spare his own son. Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I should live. When you go to bed tonight and you lay your head on your pillow and it's just you and your thoughts, one of the things that your conscience will speak to you is you're not the person you should be. And you know what? Your conscience is right. You should be a better person. That's the bad news. And the bad news is that you can't be a better person. It doesn't get better from here. It gets worse for you. But here's the good news. Jesus lived that perfect life that you could not live. He lived that perfect life. And he died. He paid the penalty. He, he died in your place. He took, he took the punishment that all of our sins deserve. Christ suffered for, not his sin, for our sin that he may bring us back to God. But it, the news actually gets a little bit better because it says it's a once and for all sacrifice. When, when Christ uh, died on the cross uh, at Calvary, the throat of Satan was mortally slit. It was, it was not something that he had to keep on doing because many of us grew up thinking like if we miss a service or if we miss communion or if we miss something like that, we have fallen from grace. In a term, you see somebody out in public and they, like, they make a few mistakes and they, they've fallen from grace. And we sometimes have this thought like, well, like we, we can like fall out of grace. And maybe you've come here today and you're thinking like, well, you know, there, there's a lot of good people maybe around here. And, you know, I, I could just never, you know, I, see, I hear the Bible, I hear about the Bible. And it's just, it's something that I can't attain. And, and you feel like the gap between you and where you need to be is so big. And so you don't even try. The only, but here's, here's what it really means to fall from grace. To fall from grace isn't to make a few mistakes because we've all, we're all in that category. The only way that you can fall from grace, that is, be outside a candidate to receive the grace of God in your life, the mercy of God in your life, is if you think that you can save yourself. If you've come here this morning and you've just like, I, I just humbly... I see what Jesus has done, and I want to humbly climb into a relationship. I, I just want to get in the boat. I want to be saved. You could be make a mess of your life. You may think Moses, you don't even know if Moses is in the New Testament, the Old Testament, or if he's some guy down the street. You just, you don't know anything. You're just like, I've made a mess, and I don't know anything about the Bible. I'm telling you, you have not fallen from grace if you've come to God and humbly repent. It's actually, let me show you a verse in, in Galatians uh, chapter 5. 
here are the people that need to be a little bit nervous and here are the people that need more of our prayer. You who are trying to be justified by the law, that just means like, a, like you're trying to live up to a standard, your own standard. You who are being justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So if, you've, if, you're, not, if you're like, no, I know that I've made a mistake. I know I, I, I have made mistakes and I, and I know I've made those mistakes. You've not fallen from, the only way that you fall from grace, if you're like, you know, yeah, I've made some mistakes, who cares? Or, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm on my own plan. Let me, let me tell you a story that Jesus said. He said this. He said, two men went up into a temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, who were like the best of the best. I mean, their, their job was being professionally good. And then the other tax collector, and, and then he says, he tells a story about a Pharisee, the best of the best, and a tax collector, the worst of the worst. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes, but he began to beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself would be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. To affect your salvation, it's not about being good. It's just about getting in the boat. You get in the boat. The storm is coming. You get in the boat. It's not being clever. It's not figuring out. It's, it's, it's humbling yourself and saying, I cannot affect my own salvation. I cannot justify myself. I cannot save myself. I just need to get in the boat. And Jesus withstood the storm for you. And he offers protection from the storm. Anyone who is in Christ, in a relationship with Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And for now, there's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ. There's nothing that can get you. There's nothing. Not even death. Not even death. So, he has paid this ultimate price. And it's so important to see that it's, it's faith and faith alone that saves us. Not any act, not any action, not even work, but faith in faith alone, not even baptism. And the reason why I mention that, because it kind of sounds like the verse that we read says that baptism saves you. And the reason why it sounds that way is because it says baptism now saves you. So, and that's why everyone from the Catholic Church to the Church of God and other places say, unless water gets on you, you're not saved. The act, the instrument of salvation is, is, is baptism. Um, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that from the Bible's perspective and this text that we read. Um, so to say that baptism saved you, first of all, is a, is a contradiction of of. The New Testament. There's over 40 times where it says that I've read, that I personally read, and you can do your own study if you want, but where it says we are justified by faith alone, apart from works. We've been something to that effect. In fact, in Romans 3.28, it says, for, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Nowhere in Scripture does it say 
you know, we are justified by faith apart from works except this one work, salvation. So it's a contradiction of Scripture, but it's actually also a contradiction of this passage because he says baptism now saves you, and Peter feels like what he's, people think he may be saying, which is that if you, get, if you get baptized, you're saved. That's what saves you. But he says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. So what he's saying, he's like, it's not, it's not the external thing. It's not water getting on the outside of you. But it's the pledge that you're making in baptism because of your good conscience. It's the pledge that you make in baptism, not baptism itself. They are closely related, but they're different. I'll explain it to you this way. So what baptism is, baptism is a powerful, breathtaking uh, dramatization of, of, what, of what has happened inside of you. So baptism is, is a symbol that you have, you have died with Christ. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, your sin, if you confess his name, his sin died with you. That he who knew no sin became sin. He became our murder. He became our hate. He became our racism. He became our injustice. He became our lying. He became all of our lust. He became all of that. And it says that that. That the Father laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our identification with Christ is that we have died with him. That our sin has died with him. That our old life, our old life that is uh, dominated by sin has died. Well, what do you do with something that's said? Well, you bury it. We've been buried with Christ. Uh, the scripture says in Romans 8, 1, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your old life has nothing to do with you. Behold, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I can't find my old life anymore. Where it's, you know, it's been buried somewhere. It's gone. And the best part is you, when you come out of the water, representing that you have raised with Christ. That the life that he now lives, you live through him, because of him. That, he, that because he has raised, you too shall raise. So what baptism is, baptism is an expression of faith of what Jesus has, that your union with him, that you have died with him, that you've been buried with him, and that you've been risen with him. And it, it, is, it is so closely connected, but it's not the act of baptism, but it's the, the appeal to, it's the appeal to God for, as a clean conscience. So, so what does that mean? So like there would be passages like in like Romans 10. It says that anyone, you've probably heard this, you didn't know the reference, but anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Basically, anyone who appeals to the name of the Lord shall be saved. This appeal, and we make that appeal in baptism. To me, it's made a lot of sense to, uh, to the, the analogy of, of faith uniting us to Christ Baptism portraying that union with Christ is, is kind of like marriage vows and a wedding ring. Um, they used to say, they don't say this anymore, but they would say, the guy, the, the guy would say, you know, with this ring, I thee wed. Anybody hear that? With this ring, I thee wed. What they're not saying is this ring has the power to wed us. It sounds like that, doesn't it? With this ring, I wed. I, I'm married because of this, this ring. But, but what, he's, what, what is being said is this ring is a symbol of our union. So what, what, makes, what makes me married 
to Rachel, my wife, isn't that I put on this ring and all of a sudden I'm married. What makes me married to Rachel are the vows that, I, that in sickness and in health, uh, for poor, for rich, I, I'm with you forever. I vow, I pledge to be with you and you alone. All that I have is yours and, and all that I am is yours. It's that pledge that makes us married. And then moments later, not three weeks later, not three months later, after I take a marriage course, but moments later, I put the ring on as a symbol that I'm with Rachel now. So it is with faith in baptism. Faith in Jesus, faith that he's died for you, faith that he lived for you, faith that he will, that you'll be with him forever. Faith saves you. Baptism is a powerful, is an expression. It is, it is in a, in a, in a, in a very, very important expression, a critical expression. That I'm with Jesus now, that I'm new, that I'm clean, that I'm forgiven, that I'm with him. And actually, one of the things, the reason why Peter mentions this, and, actually, and Paul, if you read his writings, especially like Romans and specifically Romans 6, these guys are pointing and say, hey, remember your baptism. Because these believers were, th- these guys were under a lot of pressure. They were under a lot of, of, they were suffering. In fact, that's why he mentions in that first line, for Christ also suffered. Your suffering, Christ also suffered. But remembering, knowing that your baptism, knowing that in your baptism that you that you have that you've died with Christ, that you are been buried with Christ, and you've been risen with Christ, is going to encourage you, because nobody else is really believing your message. That's why he says, "Hey, back in back in Noah's day, only eight listened out of the whole world." And so, baptism that what what saves us is our faith. Baptism is an expression. A very, it's a command of Jesus needs to happen. But it's not what saves you. It's the, it's the appeal that you make. It's the faith that you express that saves you. On the cross, thief to the left, thief to the right. I don't know which one it was, but one of them said, I'm coming to you. I've made a mess of my life. In fact, I'm justly being executed right now for the crimes I've committed. But I'm, I'm, I'm appealing, save me, Jesus. And he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. First of all, I don't care what you've done. You are a candidate for the grace of God if you will humble yourself. Secondly, the guy was not baptized. But he was with Jesus in paradise. The real question here is have you taken the vow and have you put on the ring? Have you gotten in the boat? Have you expressed faith? Yes, Jesus, I could I see that a storm is coming. I can see that I'm actually a part of that mess. I'm a part of my sin is a part of the mess. I'm not the solution. I'm part of the problem. And I'm I'm gonna humbly I'm gonna get in the boat. I'm gonna I'm gonna climb into a relationship with you. Make that vow. If faith is quickening your heart, if God is doing a work in you and you feel it, man, I want to say that. Say that. Say that today. Express that faith today. And get, put the ring on. Get baptized ASAP. 
express through the, the public demonstration of what baptism portrays, that you're with Jesus now, that you've died with him, that you've been buried with him, and you've been raised with him. And then finally, I said I wanted to give you an encouragement. Um, and the encouragement is the tricky part. This is the part that have confused some people, but I, I, I think there's some real encouragement in it, so I'm going to say it. Um, it says in the middle of verse 18, being put to death, that is Jesus, in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey in referring to those in the days of Noah. Now, some people have gotten tripped up on this and think that what this means is that um, Jesus went down into hell. After he died and before he physically appeared, that he went down into hell. And he and then basically preached uh, good news or preached to those who were in, in prison, meaning those who were in hell. Um, that Just to say, I, that could have happened, but here's why I don't think it happened. One, it would be like the biggest nana nana boo boo in history. Like Jesus, like rubbing it in. Like this is not. He's essentially went down to. So this is what he did. He went down into hell to basically tell everyone that he was right and they're wrong. That's doesn't seem like something Jesus would do. Uh, but the other reason that I think is more specific is that he's talking specifically about the date, the people in Noah's period. So he doesn't say he went down and talked to all of the saints, um, that, you know, not all the saints, excuse me, that all the people, all the spirits that were in, in prison, in hell. Uh, he doesn't say that. Um, but he, it was, he's talking about a specific time period in Noah. And here's what I'm pretty sure this means. Um, is that what he's saying, and we learned this in, for, in the second message of this series in 1 Peter 1, 11, is that Christ is in, is, spoke through the prophets. That Christ, that the whole Bible is about Jesus, and he's everywhere. In Luke 24, it says that he opened up the scriptures to, tell, to, to enlighten their minds that it was all about him. And even Paul says that we proclaim, Christ proclaims uh, himself to you through us. That we make our appeal through Christ. And, and, and that here, here's what he's saying. He's saying that Christ preached to, those, to the people in Noah's day through guys like Noah. Jesus was preaching through Noah. And they didn't listen. Jesus was preaching through the prophets. And they didn't listen. Jesus spoke through his prophets. And here's the encouraging part. Is Jesus is speaking through you and I today. Wherever Christ is being preached, Jesus is doing the preaching through these fragile jars of clay. We have churches in places like Turkey and Asia and Europe and and Russia and um, the Pacific Rim and Africa and Washington, Missouri and Lake of the Ozarks and St. Louis and Kirkwood. He's preaching in those places today. And the encouragement, brothers and sisters, is that he's preaching through you. Christ preached through you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your schools. And you know what? 
I don't know if you notice this or not, but the world is shifting. Um, Christians aren't the cool kids. Do you know that? Uh, in some parts of the world, and uh, in fact, most parts of the world for most of history, um, people have died for their faith. So in some parts of the world today, it gets you killed. It may not get you killed in this country yet, but it certainly gets you mocked. It may not cost you your life, but it will cost you your reputation. I want to encourage you with this. Christ also suffered. Well, let me read you verse 17, going into last week's message. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Basically preaching his gospel. For Christ also suffered for doing good. And his massive death led to a massive victory. And here's what he's saying, that you can also suffer with Christ. And the little deaths that you experience, the loss of reputation, feeling stupid, is going to lead to a not a little victory, a big victory, because it means that more people get on the boat, more people get on the ark. And here's the thing. It's, he says in Noah's day, only eight people out of the whole world jumped on board. So don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't withdraw because you're the only one at your work, because you're the only one in your class. You're the only one in your neighborhood. They didn't believe them, and it was Christ preaching through them, just as Christ is preaching through you. So don't be dismayed. Don't shrink back when you suffer for being good, but know that Christ is in you and with you.